0: It's my uh, privilege and blessing to introduce uh, the Reverend Alistair Petrie to you. Um, He uh, comes to us. Thank you, uh, John Davis. Uh, Father John um, has had... uh, uh, Alistair at uh, Canterbury doing a leadership retreat of whom some of our leaders have uh, had the blessing to be at present at. So um, he and Marie, who is sitting next to Father John, welcome into uh, this midst, into our midst, into this fellowship. Um, blessed us at the early service, and I know is going to bless us again. He will introduce a little bit more, perhaps his and Marie's ministry around the world. Uh, but a gifted speaker and one um, whom has um, certainly blessed me personally. We had uh, time together this uh, week um, around a fellowship table in Roberta's Hall and and uh, just a uh, new life for our uh, what the Lord is doing here. So let's have a word of prayer. Uh, so thank you. Mm. Lord, I thank you for this, your servant. Lord, thank you for your hand on his life. Thank you for drawing him to this place, to even this minute, this time, Lord Jesus. Um, for your word to come forth from him in great power and strength that it may settle itself into our hearts as you would see fit for, us to, for it to be brought back and brought into full fruit and flower in our lives and the lives of the community mm-hmm. in which we are settled. It's in your holy name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Reverend Sarah. My wife Marie and I are absolutely thrilled, incredibly honored to be with you, particularly at this uh, juncture in global history. And here at the end of our time in central Florida, we've had almost three weeks not intentionally escaping the snow, but that has actually been a a really added... I loved your playing, by the way. You remind me of my dad. He was the jazz king of Inverness, and he brought together jazz and classical organ... And, and then he brought it into renewal music. So I thank you. I just really enjoyed what you did. Bless you. Yeah. Uh, that was an aside. These, these are amazing discs. What do we do? Well, we've been in the Episcopal Anglican Church for quite a long time. These are early gray hairs. Don't worry, it's just part of the genes of the Scottish family. My accent is Scottish. Canadian. I have a Canadian wife. One of our children was born in England, one was born in Scotland, one is married to a Spaniard, while the other is married to a French Canadian. So we're sort of the League of Nations. But I, I became a Christian in broadcasting, secular broadcasting, and there we learned to, to really speak bad news, but exaggerate it to make everybody worried. And that's where I met the Lord, which is a miracle in broadcasting. And he said, now you learn how to preach the good news. Don't exaggerate it. My word is all powerful. So we came out of broadcasting. I trained for the ministry in England for different reasons. We had our first parish there, then went to Scotland, then went to Canada, where I think we inherited the deadest church in the Anglican church. But God did incredible, incredible miracles. And what we now do is we have the profound privilege of traveling up to 100 nations it is now. Uh, The Lord called us into a different form of ministry, still as an Anglican priest. But we work with many denominations, politicians, business people around the world. And what we do is we work with them, we research with them, we pray with them, so that those cities, those areas where people live and work and worship, can actually enter into what we call city transformation. I know it's hard to conceive of that, but it means where the, the majority of a city turns to the Lord. And we have now, we had only eight cities in 1999. We now have over 800 cities where you don't hear about it on CNN or Fox TV because I came out of that. They don't know how to report good news. But there are good things going on in spite of ISIS and even in ISIS. You don't hear about this. Some of the worst terrorists are having revelations of Christ And they're becoming fervent evangelists for their own people. We're seeing a profound move of God all over the world at this time. But let me say, and there's at least another 800 cities that we, some of them we work with that are not cited in that group. The move of God today is absolutely profound. But let me tell you what the common denominator is. The common denominator is that there has to be one church in that city, in that area, that's willing to pay the cost. The cost is everything. I'm not talking a financial cost. I'm talking about something that God does when he finds a group of people. doesn't matter what you've gone through. doesn't matter what your strengths are, your weaknesses are. He looks to see, are you willing to be the people that say, I will, when I say, will you? We are in this moment, Amos 9, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman, and the planter by the one treading grapes, new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. This is called accelerated divine agriculture. Come on, sore. Hurry up. Because the, the, the person who's going to do the harvesting is being outrun by the plowman who wants to go ahead of you. We're in this incredible shift globally. Even in the Episcopal Church, there are profound things God is doing that you never hear about. But that's what I'm telling you about them now. You've got to hear about them. They're amazing things. You're seeing Isaiah 66 now coming to pass. That, And this is good news for women in the prophetic sense. The child is being born before the pain of childbirth even comes. That is the movement of God in this day and age. But my question is, this morning, are you willing to be that church fellowship, Church of the Good Shepherd, who's willing to be the catalyst of change so that when I could tell you stories all week, you become dissatisfied with stories of other cities. You want to become the story that others hear about and say, wow, God is really at work there. A friend of mine called Michael Green He's a well-known evangelist in the Church of England. He's quite elderly now, but he's still going strong. He used to say the church needs to learn how to become the servant of of the word. In Luke chapter 5, there is a well known story of Peter who's been out fishing. He's been out fishing all night. He knows how to fish, but he hasn't caught any fish. And then there's the Messiah, Jesus. He wants to come under the body. He said, Let's go back out now. Let's go fishing again. And it's like Peter says, But Lord, this is the incorrect time. I'm the expert fisherman. There's no fish. This is the wrong time of day. However, at your word. I will be in agreement. That's all God looks for. So when Peter agrees with what Jesus calls him to do, that's all Jesus needs, who is the God of creation, to say to the fish, "Right fish into the net now. And that's what happens. We see it in the next chapter as well, Luke chapter 6. There's a man there with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And Jesus is higher than any legalism on the Sabbath of that day. And he says, he says to us, are you willing to stand up in front of people? Are you willing to let your vulnerability be seen? But we don't want people to see our, our sores and our wounds. It doesn't matter. If you're willing to be put forward, I can heal those. Because, you see, if you're willing to stick out your withered hand, then, you see, I can do the impossible. And as he did it, his hand was healed. I was speaking in an Anglican church in Norwich, England last year on Pentecost Sunday and I was talking about that particular verse, meaning that God can do whatever he wants as long as he's got willing people. In the congregation at that moment, I did not know, there was a retired priest who had had very, very bad skin disease all his life, and he had to wear gloves. All he heard, this little Scottish-Canadian priest was saying, if you're willing to have the obedience to the, to the power of God's word, stretch out your vulnerability, let it be seen by the Lord. And and he did that, not knowing what was going on. His hands got itchy, and suddenly, miraculously, both hands were totally healed. We were not praying for healing. It was about the response to the power of the Word of God that now had become received in his own spirit. In our second reading today from Corinthians, Paul's talking about foundations in our life, foundations of belief and receptivity. He's talking about our being the Holy Temple. And if we've got the Holy Spirit residing in us, there's absolutely no reason why God cannot, will not do the improbable and the impossible through a fellowship such as this, particularly when we say to the community, stretch our true weakness, let us show you the magnificence of the God of grace and healing who he wants to do far much more than you can either ask, ask, think, or even imagine. In Matthew 8, we have that well-known illustration when the centurion comes to Jesus. Now the centurion understands authority, normally has about a hundred foot soldiers with him. And he goes to Jesus and they have a conversation. And he, in the midst of the conversation, he says, you know, my servant's not doing well today. And so then Jesus says, it's okay. I'll come and do a house call. No, 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 no. Just give the word and he'll be healed. It's the only time in the Bible when Jesus is astonished As my particular translation says, others say he was amazed. How do we astonish? How do we amaze Jesus? Simply by the way we respond to his invitation, to his word. In Matthew chapter 9, again, we have two people who are blind, and they're coming to Jesus And basically, they want to be healed. And he says, do you really believe that I can do this? Yes, Lord, we believe you can do it. Then be it according to your belief. And they are totally healed. We're living in a day and age when God is wanting us to stretch out those areas of our weakness, our vulnerability. To let him take our weakness because his strength is made perfect. In our weakness, dear friends, this is the importance of understanding who we are as the body of Christ. We are this morning the living temple. This becomes the representation for the rest of the city to see the reality of who God is. Because we are the prophetic mouthpiece. There is a moment in biblical history when we come upon a dreadful scene. We find it in, that, in 2 Kings 6. And there's a time in society where implosions taking place. The cost of living is outrageous. The price of meat is unbelievable. And people are so desperate they're even eating children. It's horrific. And then everybody is angry at God. God always gets the blame when things are going wrong. Even if he's not referenced before, he, as the insurance companies say, he's it's called an act of God. He's the, the great escape clause. And then we, we, we see Elisha. And there we see Elisha saying, God's going to give a word. And hear the word of the Lord. This is what he says about this time tomorrow. A seah of flour will sell for a shekel, two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Well, the officer on whose arm the king was leaning said, that's impossible. He didn't believe it. And, and Elisha says, well, you will see it, but you will not partake of it. Now, suddenly the scene shifts. It's a, a very pecu- It's like a Tom Clancy novelist. It's like, wow. Why are we now dealing with four lepers? Because the four lepers, they actually represent the state of what we might call the church today, who may feel a little bit weak, a little bit incapable, and outcasts, outcasts of society. These four lepers, they're outcasts, and they're saying we've got three choices. One is if we stay here in our place of paralysis, we're going to die. If we go back to our own people, the way things were before, we're going to die. They don't like us. They're going to stone us. However, maybe, maybe we'll just go into the realm of the impossible and the improbable. Just maybe we'll go into the land of the enemy. We haven't been that way before. It looks a little bit, oh, unpredictable. But just maybe we might just somehow rather get saved and have something to eat. Well you know that's what God looks for, even in the midst of our weakness. God looks to see who's willing to say yes. And here's these four men, hapless, helpless, and they're gonna go into this they're gonna go into this place of impossibility and surrender as it were to the enemy. But you see what God then does is incredible. When they reach the edge of the Aramaeans camp, the enemy camp, nobody was there. Wait a minute. You see, God is a strategist. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the shout shout, and the sounds of chariots and horses and a great army. And they all thought, whoa, this is the Arameans. They must have hired the, the Egyptian kings. It couldn't be anything else. We better get out of here. And they abandoned all their food, all their supplies. And suddenly these four men who had leprosy, they're standing there. We used to say in Britain, they were gobsmacked. Well, you would know what I mean by that. They were gobsmacked. What is going on here? And all this food and all this silver, and they began to enjoy it. And then they said, wait a minute, we've got to tell the others. So here's the king receiving the word from four lepers, from the haplessness and hopelessness of society, saying, wow. Look what God has done, even in the midst of impossibility. Oh, yes, about that officer, he saw it all happen. But when people saw the bounty, he was trampled because he had negated what God had wanted to do. Dear friends, when God gives us a word, it's absolutely essential for us to understand that he factors in the impossible and the improbable to the degree that we're obedient to the power of his word. Because the church that is obedient recognizes that whatever God places in our hand is the raw material for us to become a catalyst of change. See, it doesn't matter what little we have. And most of us think we haven't got enough for whatever God wants. Think about Moses. All he was given was a piece of wood, a staff. And what God said to him is, if you strike that at the right time, you'll see the Red Sea open. You'll see the impossibility take place. Hit the rock with it. You'll see water come out. would come out. See, whatever in your hand as a church, collectively speaking, if you are the temple as you are, according to what we read this morning, that becomes the raw material for God to open up the impossibility in this entire area. See, that's how we have watched cities come to Christ. Because church fellowships who agree in the obedience that God requires of them, even if they feel like lepers standing at the gate of the city thinking, oh, they're not going to like this. You see, God develops the receptivity beyond our appeal of understanding. Think about the fact that Abraham sent his servant to go and find a wife for his son Isaac. I tried that. I really liked that part in Scripture. I mean, I have two, two sons, and I really thought, you know, their dad, he, he could get a really good wife for both of them. And I even subtly in our conferences would say, yeah, you know, I, I've got uh, two sons here who are available. And I was amazed when women started giving me their daughter's phone numbers. And my son said, Dad, that's a no. We can do this jolly well. That, just leave us alone. Okay, I, I learned my lesson. But you see... What happened was, in the midst of the situation, that the servant is given a command to go and get a wife for his master's son. Whoa! So he goes into the foreign land, and he says, Lord, I don't know what to do, but would you give me a woman that maybe will give me some water and would water my camels? That's that's my prayer. Would you help me out, Lord? And God always meets us where we're at, because suddenly there's this gorgeous woman called, as you know, she's called Rebecca. All she has is a bucket of water on her shoulder, not knowing that the bucket of water is the raw material that will constitute that which is required for her one day to become the mother of nations when she's married to Isaac. See, God loves to do the improbable in every one of our lives. Or you think about that, that, that little story that we often see in, in John chapter 6. That's one of the examples where there's 5,000 hungry people, men at least, and the only food could be found from was a little unnamed boy. He had two fish. Now, the Greek behind that means sardines. These are not tuna. Two little, totty little sardines and five little cheap barley loaves. That constitutes the miracle. But there's 12 baskets of fragments left over. Do you know what the fragments are? You and me. When we feel overlooked, left over, hurt, wounded, God gathers us up. And puts this into the 12 baskets, which is the biblical number for godly government. See, God loves for us to admit our weakness. Because then, as I said, in our weakness, his strength is made perfect. Or you think about David. He saw this massive Goliath. The rest of his people were capitulating to the size of the problem. You see, it's not that Goliath was too big to hit. He was just too big to miss. And all he needed was the five little smooth pebbles, five, the biblical summer of grace, but smooth meaning without any imperfection because there he was when his family, when Saul said, you're too young, got new experience, Saul said, try on my clothing. And it all fell off because God doesn't want us to be substituting somebody else's anointing for our lives. He's got something so incredibly unique. You see, my question is, What's in your hand this morning? There is a story in the Bible, one of the most incredible love stories you'll ever find, found in Ruth chapter 3, verse 3, one of the most amazing moments of history. When there you have Ruth and her mother, Naomi. They, They have no children. They have no husbands. Without having a husband in those days, there was no destiny. And through an amazing way in which... Naomi had a vision. You see, Ruth, at this point, they traveled to this area in Bethlehem. The whole city was stirred, we're told at the end of chapter 1 in Ruth. Whenever you and I move in obedience to what God is saying, you will stir a city. That's what the Bible says. Are you willing to stir the city by your simple obedience? So there they are. She's gleaning in the field of Boaz, taking leftovers. And Naomi has this vision. Wow. You know what? He's a kinsman, redeemer. And this is what she says to her her daughter-in-law. Wash. Now, you're going to be down there at 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 the threshing floor tonight. Go and wash. It's time to wash. Church, what does it mean to wash? It means to let go of anger, hurt, resentment, wounding, anything in our own lives, anything collectively that tries to rehearse its way in our thinking, wash it away. It's time for the power of the cross to do what the power of the cross can do in the life of his people. Then it says, after wash, perfume yourself. Now, that's kind of hard for men. We don't want to put on our cologne or whatever the woman's version is, emerald. But actually, it means, no, perfume in the Hebrew means, are you willing to rise up into your anointing that I prepared for you? I've got a collective corporate anointing church Would you like to rise up in even your weakness? And I will clothe you in such a profound, holy, perfumed anointing that that is who you're going to be and the rest of the world will see it. And then it says, go and put on your best clothes. That means in the situation at the time right now, Ruth is over here and she's gleaning in somebody else's field wearing a widow's garment. It's when God says, church, are you ready to go into the next stage about turn 180 degrees now put on your wedding garment and get ready for harvest. Don't be putting up with gleaning any longer. This is time for a shift and then go down to the threshing floor. It says, and let me thrash the chaff out of the wheat. Oh, gosh, Lord, that sounds hard. Yeah, but you know what? When you're willing to die to yourself, then my new life will come and pulsate in and through you. There is an amazing moment in the Gospel of John when Jesus is doing his first miracle. And there, we, oh, by the way, because of Ruth's obedience, To Naomi and she did have a child she became the great-grandmother of David and an ancestor of Jesus we don't always see the end of the story you will not necessarily see the end of the story of this fellowship but until the Lord comes, we occupy we're always occupying what God has called his church to do and that's resisting mediocrity and gleaning washing, perfuming, and getting into the harvest. So here we have a time in John at a momentous moment in the life of Jesus when the first miracle is done. If I had been his PR manager, I I probably would have chosen probably the raising of Lazarus. That might have got people's attention. But here it's this business of changing water to wine. The wine was gone. They're at a banquet, and the servants come to the mother of Jesus. She says, you do whatever he tells you to do. There were these six stone wafer jars. That's the symbol of man, each holding up to, say, 30 gallons. Jesus said, okay, fill it with water. We are mostly water, you see. This is a very important metaphor for you and me today. He told them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet. The master or the governor or the president, whoever he might well be today in this contextual situation, tasted the water. It had been turned into wine. Didn't realize where it come from, though the servants knew where it had come from. And he's amazed. This is brilliant wine. And he says, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guest of it. Too much to drink, but you've saved the best till now. You see, here's Jesus. He is the ancient of ages. He is God incarnate. And this is what Jesus is saying. I've taken the best that my father gave to his people In the Old Testament, I've I've come to fulfill that. But you know what? It's not about 180 gallons of wine. It's about the fact that I want to fill you afresh with something so profound that I have actually saved the best to last. Church of the Good Shepherd, are you willing to recognize that you may well be now the ones that God has saved for now? He saved the best for last. My final point in Second Kings 4 is again a story. There's so many little stories that tell us of the magnificence of the heartbeat of God. And this was of the wife of a man from the company of the prophets. Her husband had died. Again, hardly any destiny for her. And she had her sons. And Elisha says, how can I help you? Tommy, what, what do you have in your house? Well, I've got nothing except a little oil. That's all I've got. Just a little oil. That's all I've got. My raw material is not very much. Ah, but you see, that's all that's required to constitute a miracle. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Be greedy. Don't just ask for a few. And you need to go inside to your place of quietness, your hermitage, and shut the door behind you, you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, as each is filled, put it to one side. She left him. She was obedient to the word. She did what she was told with her little bit of raw material. She was going to go from gleaning to harvest here. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another. Well, there is no We've gone everywhere. There's no more jars. And then they all stopped flowing because there was no more need for ongoing productivity. And then Elisha said, Go sell the all. Pay your debts. You and your sons can live in what is left. You see, here you have the fact that Elisha personifies the promise of God. The oil personifies the provision. Just a little bit of oil, God magnifies it. The woman is like you and me. Are we willing to be responsive to what God's calling us to do in the jars? Who are the jars? It's your neighbors. It's the businesses. It's the whole of the community. See, the amazing thing is that God always fills the size of the container that we offer to him. Father, Marie and I want to thank you so much for this amazing place of worship and history. Father, your hand has been upon this church in years gone past. I pray you will take the team, the leadership team, the eldership team, every member of the body of Christ, And remind them, Father, of who you are, the God of provision. We are your living temple. I pray you'll remind us of what little bits we may have in our hand that when put together, this becomes the raw material, a multiplication miracle to feed as many, many hungry mouths, to feed this entire city in this area in a way that brings you honor and glory. Dear friends, what's in your hand at this moment. In Jesus' name, amen.